All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 to 3. This is the word of God, and it is, it is what? Eternally true. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where I'm going to stop. Did you feel that you just made a transition We were only supposed to read the first three verses, but did you feel at the beginning of verse 10 that all of a sudden you're making a transition? And the transition is, now, you know something different's going to happen, now I exhort you. And the exhortation moves into the body of the letter where he's dealing with their sin. But before he deals with their sin, what does he do? He encourages and strengthens them, and he comforts them. He tells them all the fruit of the Spirit and the truth spiritually about them as a church and as individuals. Um, Many of you know I have a blog, and this last week there was arguments among some of my favorite people on the blog, and they got pretty nasty. And I remembered what it was like to be a dad, and in our home it was very unusual. Our kids tell us this isn't true, but I know better than they know. It was very unusual for them to fight. I just loved the tenderness between our children. But every once in a while, they would fight. And man, it just kills parents to have that happen. Why? Well, because you love her, and you love him, and you love her. And how could any people you love fight? And that's what Paul's going through. You know, he loves these people. They're fighting. And so he says, wait, 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 wait. Here's who you are. Here's what God has done. And that's the part of the text that we're studying. We're studying, wait, wait, wait. Here's who you are. Here's what God has done. Now, I exhort you. (laughs) All right. We're still at the first part, though. Now, it was a few weeks ago or maybe months ago that we began to study the book of 1 Corinthians. And because some of you weren't here and most of us have forgotten, I want to rehearse the context for this book culturally, because I think it's so important that you understand who the people are and what the surroundings are as this letter is written. You've got to keep that in your mind always as we study the book, okay? So Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Greece, which was then called Achaia. And if Athens was the University of Greece, Corinth was its capital. About a 100 years before Corinth had been laid waste by the Roman Empire, and it had been decreed that Corinth was never to be rebuilt. 
But then it got rebuilt. And so it was only 100 years old, but by now it was five times the size of Athens. And all of the wealth of the, the Greek Empire, which those of you that know some history know that before there was the Roman Empire, there was the Greek Empire. All of the wealth of the Greek Empire, all the sophistication, all of the beautiful vases, all this stuff poured not into Athens, it poured into Corinth. Corinth was the, the, the cream of the cream of what was left of the Greeks. And a lot of the reason why Corinth developed the way it did was that Corinth sat at a place that was key for shipping. It was a place that all kinds of, uh, of uh, commerce would pass through. Corinth was then a very, very wealthy place, a very large place, a very influential place. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, um, there were a couple of things about these letters that we should keep in mind. One is that he wasn't just writing to the people in Corinth. He was writing to everybody in the province of Achaia, all the Greeks he was writing to. Number two, other letters of Paul, when he wrote to those churches, those churches were predominantly Jewish. And so the Gentiles listened sort of like, you know, you're up above the kitchen. It's a cathedral ceiling like our new house is going to have. And the people down there sort of don't know that you're listening, but you can hear everything that's going on. I learned something about cathedral ceilings when we were on vacation, which is it can be very dangerous because there can be other people in the room out of sight that you don't know are there. You've got to be careful about that, you know? Mary Lee said, well, you just don't talk about people that aren't there. It's like easier said than done. Well, Paul is talking to the Gentiles in Corinth, and the Jews are sort of like people upstairs that you can't see listening in, whereas all the other letters he's writing to the Jews and the Gentiles are the minority, all right? So Paul is called the Apostle to the Gentiles, and so he's at his finest form dealing with the Gentiles in Corinth. And so when he writes to them, he writes to them as Gentiles, but he doesn't just write to the ones that are in Corinth. He also writes to the others who are listening in other towns in Achaia, like, for instance, the ones in Athens where he spoke to the Areopagus. I can see that you're very religious people. You have idols everywhere, even an altar to an unknown God, remember that? In First, Second Corinthians, the next letter, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then he says, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. So in other words, these letters would be read broadly. They wouldn't just, you know, go to the pastor and he'd say, well, the apostle Paul wrote me a letter and I have these things to, to relate to you from that letter. No, the letter would be written to that church. The letter would be, then be passed on and on and on and on. So in other words, people all across the Greek empire, the old Greek empire, would have heard this letter. Now, what else do we know about the recipients of this letter? Um, well, principally it is to Corinth, and Corinth was a city known for her decadence, her great cultural treasures inherited from ancient Greece, and her sexual immorality, so much her sexual immorality that there was a, uh, a, a participle in Greek that was sort of to Corinthiate. 
All right? He's Corinthiating. And what that meant was he's being sexually promiscuous. That's how much the identity, it would be like, here it would be like he's Las Vegasing, or he's San Franciscing, or he's uh, Jerry Seinfelding. Or he's Bloomington. So you think in our country of the places that are known to be the center of sexual decadence, Fort Lauderdale, sodomite capital of Florida, all right? You think of the places that are known to be sexually decadent, all of Utah, sexually decadent. You don't think of that, do you? What do you think polygamy is? You think of New York City, and in Indiana, you think of Bloomington. Everybody in Indiana knows what Bloomington is, right? Those of you in the music school know what Bloomington is. So here's my point. My point is, here in Bloomington, you are the recipient of the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's written to you. You don't have to do any cultural translation, none at all. You are Corinthians, and I want that to be the theme of our study in Corinthians. You don't even have to worry about thinking what it would be like to be in another culture. Just be Bloomingtonians, and it will apply to you perfectly. All right? Now, to prove this to you, let me read what an academic an intellectual has to say about the letter to Corinthians and the people it's written to. And I tell you, it's, this is written by an academic and an intellectual, because when you have an academic and an intellectual saying this, you really have something. All right? Here's what C.K. Barrett says. He says that the people that this letter is written to, it's written to combat, quote, the false pride the false knowledge, the false liberality, the false freedom, the false display, the false philosophy to which an intellectual age, especially in a declining nation, is constantly liable. Here, more than anywhere else in his writings, the Apostle Paul's allusions and illustrations are borrowed not merely from Jewish customs and feelings, but from the literature, the amusements, the education, the worship of Greece and Rome. Unquote. So now this is what an intellectual, an academic, a scholar has to say about the letter to the Corinthians. Now let me go back and read it to you again, the pertinent part, the part that I think is particularly pertinent. It's He's combating... C.K. Barrett says, the false pride, the false knowledge, the false liberality, the false freedom, the false display, the false philosophy, to which an intellectual age, especially in a declining nation, is constantly liable. Now, is that us? I mean, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like dead on, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's painfully, painfully true. What about the false pride? Bloomington oozes pride. I tell people I've never liked living in Bloomington. And I would go back to Madison, Wisconsin in a heartbeat. And people look at me like I'm insane. 
Because what people know about Madison is it's unbelievably liberal. It makes Bloomington look like a tame conservative backwater in everything but sex. And it's true. But then I explained that if you go to Madison, Madison is large enough that there's something that is bigger than the university. The state capitol's there. It's wonderful. There's a presence that's larger than the university, the state capitol. And then there's industry and there's business and there's commerce. In Bloomington, ain't nothing but IU. Now, it's not quite true. There is Cook. And there is Crane. But really, Bloomington is IU. And the pride of this place, because of IU, is sickening. And it just constantly um, torments me. There's nothing to discipline the pride of IU in Bloomington. Nothing. So, is it a true pride or a false pride? Well, it's completely false. But I won't go into that because that's a regular theme as I preach. But if you think that there should be pride on the part of the scholars that are at IU for their great learning and their great pursuit of truth, uh, unless you're in math... And even then, I wonder sometimes. I mean, it would take a really hard science for that to be true. (laughs) You know what I mean by that? Uh, It would take a science that's completely unable to be operated on by political correctness. So, okay, false pride. Next, he says, the false knowledge. Well, (laughs) remember what G.K. Chesterton says? All the talk of what is latest in scholarship is merely a giggling excitement over fashion. And scholars who are honest will tell you that that's painfully true. All right, so false pride, false knowledge, and then false liberality. <laughs> if, I, if I write a book before I die, it'll probably be that, a book on false liberality. Bloomington prides itself on being liberal, right? Oh, we're so progressive, so evolved, so liberal, so open-minded. So inclusive, except if you ever have the audacity to be a Christian. And then you'll find out how open-minded and tolerant and diverse and plural and, and broad and evolved and liberal this town really is. And that's what it is. I'll tell you a little story. A few years ago, actually 12, I think, Miles Brand was the president here. And he was invited to come meet with the campus ministry members. And I was one of them. So about 25 of us were in a room at the campus. And he came. He was the new new president. Maybe it was 14 years. I don't remember. And he came into this room. And the officers of this group at that time were uh, a lesbian and I forget what else. You know, they were religious workers of a different faith. You know, the prevailing faith of IU, but not of Christianity. And uh, so Miles Brand came in, and he was talking about his vision for the university, and they were commending him for uh, all of the things he shouldn't have been commended for. And uh, he started out by saying he was a Jew, 
but a non-practicing one, and one got the feeling that among some members of the group that was a commendation rather than a confession. And uh, then he went on and described what his vision was, and and, uh, then, I think it was the lesbian, she talked to him and she said, but what a wonderful thing you've done in opening up the... the, the, uh, What's, I can't remember the name of it. It's the Center for Perversity and Polymorphous Perversity and, and Pre-Chosen Polymorphous Perversity. It has some letters or something. It's something like that. I can't remember the name of it. But I actually try never to remember the name of it. But it was a center for people who have chosen to give themselves to shame. All right? Some of you, anybody know the name of that center? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, would you tell us the name? Yeah, gay, lesbian, what? Bisexual and and transgendered, yeah. He had just... Okay, okay. He had just opened this center. And so they were commending him for what a wonderful thing he'd done. And he said, well, you know, but it had been a source of controversy. And he said, well, you know... Yes, there were some people who were opposed to it, but he said, I am committed to doing what is best for the students of Indiana University. And that's why I pushed it through and got the center open. And so I raised my hand and I said, Dr. Brand, could I have a word? Well, yes. And I said, I'm an orthodox small o, Christian pastor, that means I subscribe to the historic Christian faith. And as a minister of the gospel, I'm in submission to the authority of the Word of God, half of which is the same book that is an authority among Jews, namely the Old Testament. And so what the Old Testament says, I submit to that authority. And you know what it says about sodomy. And I said... And therefore, what you have done is not at all helping the students under your care. But it is rather leading them directly into the judgment of God and eternal torment. And I said, and I don't say this to be disrespectful, but I say this to make it clear that you are no friend to the students of Indiana University in that action. And I said, but on the other hand, I have a proposal that I think would meet with your approval and that I want to commend to you. And that is, since you're an advocate of pluralism and diversity and inclusivity, I would encourage you to put on the staff of that center an Orthodox Christian such as myself, so that there's at least one person there who will love homosexuals and who will stand with them as they fight against the temptation that is trying to lead them to hell. And then we'll have a truly pluralistic center And I I think I ended by saying, wouldn't that be a good idea? Well, you can just imagine. 
I'm not sure who hated me more at that moment. The campus crusade staff workers who were there and always hid. The lesbian who was our officer. Or Miles Brandt. <laughs> but Miles Brandt had the floor. I'd been speaking to him, so he got to respond. And he looked at me and he said, well, as the president of a major research institution, uh, appointing such a person to the staff of that building is something that I may not do. As the one who is responsible to the governing body of the state of Indiana, presiding over one of the state universities, that is something that I shall not do as, and I forget what the final thing that he described himself as, but he went through may not, shall not, and then he said, I will not do. He had his trinity. And then he looked at everybody and he said, well, I'm out of time. Uh, no, 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 wait. I'm here. Nope, nope, that's not what happened. No, then he, he realized he let the cat out of the bag and he wasn't an impartial and inclusive and pluralistic philosophy professor. <laughs> and so he realized he had some damage control to do. He looked very softly at me then and he said, but I think your idea about putting somebody on the staff who is, is, is a traditional Christian, I think that that... It has, has great merit. I think we should consider such a step. He said, I would value very much as the president of this university having somebody of your perspective on the staff of the lesbian, gay, polymorphous, perversive, whatever it is, thing. Now I need to leave. I'm sorry. I'm out of time. I'm, and he was gone. Well, when he left, the place was absolutely silent. Nobody wanted to say nothing. And the lesbian, she said, well, does anybody want to say anything? And nobody said a word. And she didn't quite know what to say yet herself. And so she said a second time, does anybody want to say anything? And I did. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was where it got hard for me. I looked at her, and in front of everybody there, I looked at her and I said, I'd like to say something, may I? And she's kind of... <laughs> you know, <laughs> And I said, I would just like to say how pleased I am to have the new president say that he believes that an Orthodox Christian pastor under the authority of the Word of God who calls people tempted by same-sex intimacy to repentance, how much he wants a person of that persuasion to serve on the staff of the polymorphous perversity place. And I kept an absolutely straight face as I said it, <laughs> which was the difficult part. <laughs> I would just, you know, I acted like I was a naive, you know, like I, I didn't know exactly how much. And the meeting broke up immediately. Actually, no. What happened was she looked at me and she said, President Brand said, what? And so I repeated for her what he had just said. And he had said it. 
And about two weeks later, I got a call that I was not going to be allowed to continue to be a member of the Campus Ministry Association. And the call came from the head of the Christian church ministry on campus at the time, a man that many of you know. He explained to me that some of the homosexuals there had been offended by what I had said. Now listen, if you're a homosexual here and you're tempted by same-sex intimacy, you know very, very well that I love you. And I'm not ashamed of you. And if you're a man, I'll kiss you. I don't have any problem loving people tempted by any sin. None. I don't think you're dirty. I just think you're just like me. But you can imagine that if you are defying the living God and you heard what I said, you hated me with a perfect hatred, right? If you go around telling people that your shame is your glory, that you're a lesbian rabbi, You can imagine they hated me, right? And you can imagine that the evangelical Christians who live to hide in Bloomington also hated me, right? Because all of a sudden I was, now you know what I'm going to say, right? All of a sudden I was, now you know what I'm going to say, right? All of a sudden I was outing them. They had to come out of the closet with me there. Not as homosexuals, but as Christians. Think about the irony of that. Now, why am I talking about all of this? I'm talking about it because Corinth was the center of a false liberality. What did every person there believe they held to? Every single one of them believed that they held to a liberal view, a liberal practice, a liberal philosophy. They're all inclusive until a Christian speaks up. And then the world gets very tight and very narrow and very judgmental and very moralism, moralistic and very, very censorious and very judgmental. And In other words, everything this community tells you it is, is a lie. There is no tolerance for anything in this community except rebellion against the living God. That's the truth. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand Bloomington. Not until you begin to see that everything here is a conspiracy to rob God of the glory and honor that is due him. Will you begin to understand the smallest things you go through every single day here? The man standing on Indiana Street at the stop sign, stopping your car and giving you a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt is a denial of the authority of the living God. Because when a woman goes to him and tells him that her father sexually molested her for years, he will not prosecute the father. Because we have the Kinsey Institute here, where Kinsey published and encouraged men to prey on children, wrote it up in scholarly works. They're sold all over the world, and it's the foundation of the sexual revolution of the 60s. And it continues to live here. It's the most sophisticated repository of pornography that there is in the world. 
And this man's giving you a ticket for not having your seatbelt on? And we're all so proud that we're so enlightened that no one can smoke in bars. There is absolutely no way to understand this community until you understand that the ordering principle here is the defying of the living God and his authority and glory. That's what we're about. And once you understand that, then you go to the book of Corinthians like a newborn babe desiring the pure milk of the word of God. Because you know everybody's crazy. Everybody's a rebel. And you're a rebel. You see, until you understand your culture, you won't know yourself. You can't know who you are until you see who you live among. And if it would help you for me to stop talking about Bloomington because it's too uncomfortable, then fine, I'll talk about Corinth and the Corinthians. And there what happens is we have men and women who claim the name of the living God while denying that you have to be married to have sex, while thinking it's a matter of pride that they have a man in their midst who's sleeping with his father's wife, who get drunk and are gluttons at the Lord's table while the people right next to them who are also Christians in the same church are too poor and have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. Who are going to court against each other asking pagans to adjudicate their disagreements. Who say that I am of Apollos and I am of Paul and and then of course there's always one of them. I am of Jesus Christ. And I'm not being sacrilegious by saying that. That's what it says. You know, that people are even using the name of Christ as a way of spiritual one-upmanship against the people that are just of the Apostle Paul. Never mind that the Apostle Paul, when he writes and speaks, bears the authority of his master, Jesus Christ. How does the Apostle Paul compete with Jesus when he is an apostle set apart, when God revealed himself to the Apostle Paul through his son? It's impossible. But there are always people in a church that will say, I'm of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And how do you argue with that? No, you're actually of yourself. That's what you are. You remember when Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees and they said, our father is Abraham. And Jesus said, your father is the devil. And that's that church. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Jesus Christ. Go to court against each other. Man sleeps with his dad's wife. They're proud of their sophistication and their liberality. And think of Bloomington's pride over its liberality. Okay, forget the issue of inclusivity, all right, and diversity and pluralism. Move over to the issue of nationalized health care. Oh, we're liberal. We're so liberal that we think it's a basic right of every person in this country to have health care. And we're going to give you health care. Wait until the State of the Union message comes. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. And once again, just like Bush, you'll have a president who is giving gifts to you as if he himself is selflessly committed 
to helping the least among us, a compassionate liberalism, a compassionate conservatism. It's the same thing. And what they're really doing is giving you the money of their great, 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 great grandchildren. That's what it's all about today in politics. They pander to you and claim to be giving you things. And who's paying for it? Never the one who's in public office. (laughs) Think of Al Gore going around trying to stamp out large carbon footprints in his jet. And he's asked publicly, I tell you what, I'll get on board if you'll stop using your jet. And guess what? He says, no. (laughs) False liberality. Now, listen, I'm not making a partisan statement. That's why I included Bush with Obama. Bush had his pharmaceutical program. Obama has his nationalized health care. I don't give a plug nickel for Republicans or Democrats. doesn't matter to me at all, okay? My point is that the Corinthians and Bloomingtonians are absolutely convinced that we are liberal. And it's nothing but a scam. And until we have the ability of seeing through the deception of our public leaders, of our pastors, of our professors, of our school superintendents, of our policemen, and begin to see the disparity between the holiness and truthfulness and uh, unweighted scales, honest scales of God, who is justice and truth and holiness perfectly. And just the smallest thing our civil authorities do, then we will not hunger and thirst after the kingdom to come. We'll think we've arrived. We'll think that salvation is liberation. We'll be so filled with ourselves that we'll be content to live in the sewers of Corinth and Bloomington. In other words, here's my point. That description, false liberality, false knowledge, false wisdom, false philosophy, that description is me and it's you. Don't think that you can live in Bloomington and not suck it in. Every time you breathe in this community, you breathe exactly what the Corinthians breathed. You can commit sexual immorality and be proud. We had a man recently, he was fornicating with a woman. He was confronted and confronted for hundreds and hundreds of hours by different people. Over the course of years, two separate women. And I guarantee you, when the elders disciplined that man, he was proud and thought the elders were unbiblical and did not see him having the stature that he really had in Christ. (laughs) Now listen, only Satan can do that. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's an incredible work of delusion, right? You have to have some serious dope to smoke to get there. And the dope is Corinth and Bloomington, and you're smoking it. And so you're just as deceived as the Corinthians are. And you need the letter to the Corinthians. Hey, 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 hey. Do you need the letter to the Corinthians or do you need it all cleaned up? Do you need me to present it pre-masticated so it's not offensive and it doesn't cut you and you can maintain your great 
eminence and sit in church and be proud. Do you need the book of Corinthians? Do you need it? Do you think you need it? Do you think that Bloomington's done a number on you? Or are you... (laughs) So wise of such an excellent pedigree of Christian families from another culture in math and not in English literature and philosophy, (laughs) that, my goodness, you don't need the book to Corinthians. So this is Corinth, people. Now, one other thing, and then I'll be done. Um, I want you to notice in the text... It says Corinth, that's what we've been talking about, but it also says this, to the church of God, the church of God. Now, I've just described the Corinthians, and the Apostle Paul calls them what? He calls them what? The church of God. I just got done describing the Corinthians, and the Apostle Paul calls calls them what? The church of God. Now, at this point, you should be feeling tension. And you should be feeling tension because you should be thinking to yourself, how on earth could the Apostle Paul, writing on the inspiration of the Scripture, refer to that as the church of God? It's not a church. It's a hellhole. If that's what was going on in that place, how could he call it a church? And the Apostle Paul writes them, and the Apostle Paul calls them the church of God. Now, why is this important for you? Well, let me hammer it home a little bit more. Which is at Corinth? And then parallel construction, the church of God, and then those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're going, okay, I'll get the church, but sanctified? Holy? You've got to be kidding me. These people? And that's a comfort to you. Because what that shows you is that people who are the church of Jesus Christ and who are holy are people who say, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul and I'm of Jesus. They're people that go to court against each other. They're people who are proud to have a man in their midst who is sleeping with his father's wife. In other words, the sin that you have in your heart that is so horrible that you'll never, ever, ever breathe of it to anyone. And causes you constantly to think you're not even a Christian, let alone an upstanding member of this church. The sin that causes us as a church to look at each other and say, we're not even a true church. We're so filled with sin and false doctrine. Those precise things do not disqualify us from being a church of Jesus Christ and being described as being sanctified. In other words, Jesus Christ said he came to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the chief. In other words, God is merciful to sinners sinful churches and if God is merciful to sinful churches and if he is not ashamed to have them bear his name 
then the application to us is we should not be ashamed to call him father. We should not be ashamed to take our sin to him in all its wickedness. Our thought sins, not just the sins that other people see. And confidently trust that he will be merciful to us through his son. And the other application is we should love the church. And you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This church, and I say, no, not this church, evangelical community church. We should love ECC. And you say, well, you know, that's not what I've heard from you before. And I say, that's because I'm a sinner. And what I want to do is justify my existence by showing how I'm faithful and ECC isn't. I'm faithful and Emmanuel Baptist isn't. I'm faithful and Exodus and Matt Nussbaum isn't. Why do I do that? Well, I do that because I am of Tim Bailey. And don't you get off the hook. Because the truth is you're proud to be a part of Church of the Good Shepherd. And you look down your noses at other churches. And you say, well, that's only because our shepherd taught us to do that. You got me. And so another application is we need to love the churches of Bloomington. Love them generously. You know, it's so easy to love churches when you go on vacation because they haven't hurt you. And I just love going on vacation and going into other churches and just loving up on them. I just love it. We went to this great church in Sawyer, Michigan. It was just beautiful. They had Solideo Gloria books in their library, Banner of Truth. They had a band. They weren't stodgy. They believed the doctrines of grace. And they're Baptist, and I particularly enjoyed that part of it. <laughs> and that's the truth. I always love it when Baptists have more courage in the gospel than Presbyterians do. I think there may be some hidden truth there, but I haven't pieced it out yet. Um, but listen, when you live in a family, the family members hurt you, and a lot of you have been hurt by your family, and God tells you to love your family. He commands you to honor the very parents who have hurt you. Well, it's the same thing in a community. When you live with other churches, they hurt you. And you hurt them. And they're called to love you. And if they don't love you, that doesn't mean that you can show your superiority to them. And so what we need to do as a church is we need to love the churches in this community the same way we love our family members who are sinners and have hurt us. We need to love them. And we need to expect them to love us. And we need to honor them. Now, am I saying that about the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints? No, it's a false church. In the New Testament, there is a phrase used to refer to false churches. Does anybody know what that phrase is? Synagogue of Satan. And so in the New Testament, those places that reject the gospel are not called the church. They're not referred to as those sanctified. They are called the synagogue of Satan. And the apostle Paul is hated by them. Often they try to kill Paul, and he leaves and starts another church. 
And so there are false churches in Bloomington. There are synagogues of Satan. The Mormon church is a synagogue of Satan. It denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. It denies the gospel. It's a synagogue of Satan. So I'm not trying to get you to get all cosmic and warm and velveteen rabbity towards the Mormons. All right. And oneness Pentecostals are synagogues of Satan. They deny the Trinity. I don't want you to get all warm and fuzzy towards oneness Pentecostals that deny the Trinity. And the Roman Catholic Church is a whore of Babylon. And you go, oh, there he goes. I knew. <laughs> Listen, I'm just a Protestant. I'm only saying what all Protestants have always said until the last kind of loosey-goosey 20 years. All right? When everybody's for peace, which means nobody's for peace. Everybody's for compromise and nuance and ambiguity. That's what everybody's for today. Roman Catholic Church, as a church, stands opposed to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone, but not faith by itself. The Roman Catholic Church still has not repudiated the doctrines of the Council of Trent. The Roman Catholic Church is a false church. It's a synagogue of Satan. That's why the Reformers all referred to it as the Whore of Babylon. Does that mean that there aren't Christians in the Roman Catholic Church? No. There are an infinite number of Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. And some of them I love. But that doesn't mean that I say that the Roman Catholic Church is a true church. And so... One more. Liberal churches where they have sodomites who are self-affirming and are their shepherds and bishops and where they call abortion, quote, an act of faithfulness before God, unquote, and they deny that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary atonement, that they speak of Jesus Christ simply being a great moral influence. Synagogues of Satan. They deny the gospel. They are not true churches. All right? So... What have I done? Have I taken away with one hand what I gave you with the first? No, I haven't. I've said, one, this Pentecostal, synagogue of Satan, Roman Catholic, centralized dogma, synagogue of Satan, Mormon, synagogue of Satan, mainline liberals, synagogue of Satan, but now you all know that there are a whole host of churches left in Bloomington that aren't synagogues of Satan, that worship the true God, that preach Scripture, that have the celebration of the sacraments in a biblical way. And those churches we should delight in and love. And you say, well, yeah, but they don't practice church discipline. And I say, well, there are some vestiges. Some vestiges. And certainly, well, here, let me read to you Calvin. And with this, I, I really will end. In the Institutes, in book four on the church, he says, he's, he, what he's dealing with is he's dealing with Anabaptists who at the time of the Reformation wanted to say that there was no true church, all right? That there just wasn't any. And that what they needed to do is they needed to uh, condemn anything that smacked of Roman Catholicism at all. And so they're going around judging Presbyterians, judging Lutherans, saying nobody but us are right. All right? And he says this. He says, take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. 
What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to preach? Truly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then parties had been formed among you. In other words, he's referring to the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul's saying, hey, look at the book of 1 Corinthians. And he's saying back then, they refer to those who are of Apollos and Cephas and, and of Christ, parties among you. But that inclination for one above another entailed less guilt upon you inasmuch as your partialities were then shown towards apostles already of high reputation and towards a man whom they had approved. But now reflect who those are that have perverted you. In other words, back then, the people they were fighting among were Jesus Christ and the apostles. And so they really did have some legitimate preeminence. But you, you're fighting? This is, this is Calvin. He says, but now reflect who those are that have perverted you and lessened the renown of your far-famed brotherly love. It is disgraceful, beloved. Oh, brother. David Canfield, how have you been able to be quiet? <laughs> Stench. Oh, well. You dear man. Okay, hold on. I lied. You want to tell him? Go on, tell him. Well, the mistake I'm making. You may not know. Do you know? That's the text you sent me from Clement of Rome. It's not Calvin. So Clement of Rome is writing 30 to 50 years after Paul writes to the Corinthians. And this is what Clement of Rome is saying to the Corinthians just a couple decades after they're already divided. In other words, this is who the Corinthians are 50 years later. But now I'll read Calvin 1,500 years later. And he says this. He says, book four, the church. But they cry out, it is intolerable that a plague of vices rages far and wide. Suppose the apostles' opinion here again answers them. Among the Corinthians, no slight number had gone astray. In fact, almost the whole body was infected. There was not one kind of sin only, but very many. And there were not light errors, but frightful misdeeds. There was corruption not only of morals, but of doctrine. What does the Holy Apostle, the instrument of the Holy Heavenly Spirit, by whose testimony the church stands or falls, do about this? Does he seek to separate himself from such? Does he cast them out of Christ's kingdom? Does he fell them with the ultimate thunderbolt of anathema? He not only does nothing of the sort, he even recognizes and proclaims them to be the church of Christ and the communion of saints. Isn't that beautiful? Among the Corinthians, quarrels, divisions, and jealousies flared. Disputes and altercations burgeoned together with greed. An evil deed is openly approved, which even pagans would detest. The name of Paul, who they ought to have honored as a father, is insolently defamed. Some mock the resurrection of the dead to the destruction of the whole gospel as well. God's free gifts serve ambition rather than love. And many things are done without decency or order. And yet the church abides among them because the ministry of the word and of the sacraments remains unrepudiated there. Who then would dare snatch the title church 
from these who cannot be charged with even a tenth part of such misdeeds. In other words, what's going on today? It's not a tenth of what was going on in Corinth. What's going on in Bloomington, other evangelical churches? Not a tenth of what was going on in Corinth. And so don't follow me if I repudiate other churches that are evangelical. Love them. Exhort me, rebuke me, correct me to love them. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. What I ask would those who rage with such curlishness against present-day churches have done with the Galatians? All but deserters of the gospel among whom this same apostle still recognized churches. So that's Calvin. We have to love the church because she is the bride of Christ. He loves her. He died for her. He is perfecting her and sanctifying her. He is making her pure. And the process of being made pure is very difficult. And it is true that many, many evangelical churches today will do everything they can to silence my voice as I call Miles Brandt to repentance. But when those churches and those Christian leaders, those parachurch workers, when they silence me, do you understand this? I am to love them. Okay? Generously love them. Isn't that what you would expect out of your two children who were fighting amongst each other? One's older, and the little baby snatches a toy out of the older one's hand. And what would you do? Go smack the baby for taking something out of his big brother's hand? You expect the big brother to be what? Liberal! Truly, lovingly liberal. Generous, benevolent, loving. And that's what we have to be to the church. Because Christ died for her and he loves her. That does not mean that we give up saying the things that everybody wants to shut us up for saying. It does not mean that we give up the practice of church discipline because other churches hate us for it. But it doesn't justify us going nanny, nanny, poo-poo to them. Let's pray.